1: Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheesman. Today I'm talking with Anthony Reed, an emeritus professor at the Australian National University's School of Culture, History and Language about his latest monograph. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheesman. Today I'm talking with Anthony Reid, an emeritus professor at the Australian National University's School of Culture, History and Language, about his latest monograph, A History of Southeast Asia, Critical Crossroads which Wiley Blackwell published this year, 2015, as the latest instalment in the History of the World series. Tony, welcome to the show, and congratulations on your latest impressive study. Thank you,
0: Nick. Pleasure to be here.
1: When you spoke about the book at the Asia Book Room here in Canberra this June, you revealed that it was 25 years in the writing. Can you please begin by telling us a bit of the backstory to the book, the history of the history, so to speak? When and how did plans to write it begin, and why did it take around half of your long and very productive professional life to complete?
0: <laughs> it is an embarrassing question. Indeed, it's it's precisely half. Uh, I've been in the business, I suppose, of writing and uh, teaching for 50 years, and um, it was 1990 when this book was commissioned. I was embarrassed to be reminded by the publisher when, when we started appealing to the, the What's, what's in the contract. My God, it's still there. It's still we uh, preserved somewhere. Uh, it, I suppose it's because when I published the first volume of Southeast Asia and the Engine of Commerce, it made a little bit of a splash beyond the Southeast Asian world. Um, I remember the editor of this series that invited me to write saying, for him, the Europeanist, for him it had uh, created a new part of the world. You know, long so know, put on the uh, so I was enrolled at that early stage when there was a bit of a buzz about that book. But as I said, I've got uh, lots of books that I have to write. And this is a book for somebody later in the career, sum, summing everything up. And uh, so if it's okay, I'll, I'll leave it a few years. Uh, uh, later, I decided that I in mean, this, I mean, at several points on my life, I said, this is ridiculous. you give me an advance Sorry, here is the money back, please uh, forget it. I'll go. On. And they said, No, 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 we want you to be guilty, we want you to feel. You know? uh, and somehow the, the, the people managing this series were still there. To be, you know, I finally got around to that uh, five, six years ago when I'd done all the other urgent things that had to be done. You know? I mean, maybe it's an element of truth in this idea that you know, some books are better written at a late stage. Think that's probably true
1: and so you do feel that's the case with this book, as you said it's a summing up book it?
0: It, it is I, I know myself the feeling i've had with the certain books and theses come across my well who the hell is he to write that book you know what well, gives him the pertinent mean, some 22 year old something else to you know turn everything on his head and, um, one does somehow, in some ways, defer to the older guys. Okay, well, if somebody else had done it. I might have said ridiculous, scubers uh, to 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 skate so lightly over the whole thing. But um, yeah, it, 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 in one sense, I have uh, got beyond that, and and. Feel as if, I felt in writing it as if I was saying everything I needed to say about South East. i big pictures of South East. And there's lots of books I, I still haven't written that I would have liked to write. But in, one, in terms of the big picture, gender, for example, I, I thought I should write a book about that. Religion, I thought I should write a book about that. But um, at, at one level, I've you know, put it all
1: right. Well, let's turn to some aspects of that big picture. You mentioned gender, and that's one of the themes that runs throughout the book. You talk a lot about the role of women in Southeast Asian economies and societies and suggest that that role has been grossly underestimated. So can you speak to that aspect of the book and why you think that's the case?
0: I I came up with this idea in the the 80s, I guess, when I was writing the book that became Southeast Asia in the Age of Commerce, discovered uh, from reading all the accounts of outsiders who come into this region, whether it's mainland or island, south of the the same kind of shock on the part of travelers in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century that women are doing so much of the work, uh, that women are doing all the business, the uh, marketing, buying and selling. It was a shock for Chinese, and it was a shock for Europeans, and it was a shock for Northern Indians. So, um, but all of those peoples found that they had to live with women and indeed to, to uh, find a woman, to live with a woman and, and split the business with her it was an extremely advantageous. So I, I believe then, as uh, in writing that book, which was essentially about the 15th to 17th century, the pre-colonial South that this was an extremely important phenomenon and I, I think I established that in its more or less become a cliche or an established uh, idea. I think about early uh, South East or pre-Colonial. What I hadn't addressed was what happened with Madoon. Is that still the case or is that just a plain piece of the past of no great relevance? Uh, And I I did find that uh, troubling and necessary to address, and as you will have seen in the later chapters, I deal with it essentially by looking at the impact of colonial modernity on South Australia. And I talk about modernity later, but essentially I, I want to see modernity. I was meaning the place we're at now, but meaning a particular mindset uh, which uh, dominated Europe in the late 19th, early 20th century, which uh, was extremely gendered. It it believed that uh, women should be in in the home, having lots of children, uh, if you think of Victorian England, for example, and that men should be in the workplace, and that there should be a split like this, uh, and that this is part of the, the sort of urbanism that transformed industrial countries at that time. Um, which meant that women weren't safe anymore. the village, they can work, but once they're in the city, this kind of uh, domesticity, dressed up with all kinds of puritan religious explanations, um, was essential. So this was the form in which modernity was eventually accepted as a goal by Southeast Asians around 1900. Up till then, they'd on the whole resisted uh, a lot of the the things the Europeans brought. But around 1900, give or take a decade or uh, so, everywhere, the same sense to hold that. Um, this phenomenon, this mindset that has delivered railway trains and telegraphs and newspapers and canned goods and all kinds of advantages the telephone, um, we want this. we um, can't uh, go on and resist it. Uh, we want them, and it seems that part of the package is this patriarchy. So that was that was the way I uh, I looked at this. Basically, that modernity as in part a means of uh, controlling women, and domesticating them, but unsuccessfully in the end.
1: And you're sceptical about modernity in that periods or like the promises of modernity partly because I gather when you compare it with earlier periods that you studied in depth you find that it falls rather short and that in so many respects there were more here I'm not just talking about uh, women but for the societies of, and economies of Southeast Asia that there were more opportunities and there were more and the different kinds of prospects to those that emerged in the, in the late colonial period. Can you tell us something about um, why or another of the aspects of those earlier periods, whether it's the age of commerce that you discuss at length in, in one part of the book or other uh, earlier periods,
0: you mean what, what went wrong, is it were, something
1: that. Was flourishing in area with well, for instance, um, you refer to how the infrastructure that the late colonial period brought, mesmerized, I think is the term that you use, historians, led them to think of this as a period of high industrialization and economic growth. If you say that evidence is now emerging that even in the, the age of Commerce, in actual fact, uh, as a result of the interaction of Chinese merchants and traders, there was a greater amount of economic production and exports from the region compared to uh, subsequently.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you you picked up that point. Indeed, I've spent some time arguing that. In the age of commerce, I mean, that that was a a particular period when trade brought great benefits to Southeast Asia, when Southeast Asia was, in a sense, the centre of the unification of the world, and that it was the place that produced the spices, which uh, Europe went crazy about, uh, and that, of course, the reason that Europe discovered America and discovered Asia, was that they were often pursued by the spices, which essentially located in Southeast Asia. So it gave Southeast Asia a central role and brought enormous uh, sudden uh, wealth to to the trading routes around Southeast Asia. Um, That period ended in the uh, in what I call the 70th-century crisis. Um, partly, most obviously, because the, the Dutch trading company, the Dutch East India Company, uh, succeeded in monopolizing the key spices and, and therefore reducing the benefits for Southeast Asians from the spice trade to almost zero, um, but harvesting great benefits for the company itself, uh, at the cost of a huge infrastructure to, to control everything, to build frauds yeah. and jails. Um, but even after that, uh, even after that setback, which was a crisis and which did uh, did lead to a period when foreign trade seemed much less attractive and uh, um, it was a kind of vernacularization of South Asian societies. You have another boom uh, in the eighteenth, early nineteenth century. Um, which is essentially generated, as you say, by Chinese, by Americans, by others breaking the monopolies of the English and Dutch, and uh, giving rise again to a more rapid period of, of export growth. And that's the only thing you can measure. But as the economic historians have have relatively few tools that are really really concrete and satisfactory for the period before the nineteenth century, but export trade. International trade is, is the key one, and uh, this certainly grew more uh, strongly before high-colonialism than during High-colonialism <laughs> mm-hmm. was actually a period a macro stagnation. That That's now freedom uh, Where colonial writers tended, I mean, they hadn't done the sums, I mean, there as much that hadn't been done, couldn't have been done then, but they tended to see the story as one well.
1: Building the infrastructure. The runways and the opposite. Let's uh, go back to some other themes in the book, and we'll we'll return to these points shortly. And if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about the state. Um, You tend to write against studies that emphasize or perhaps arguably overemphasize the role of the state, studies of state formation with which political scientists uh, are fond. Why is that the case? And again, can you uh, pick up on some aspects of the book that that speak to this position you hold?
0: Well, thank you. I say I say at the beginning that I think Southeast Asia is a good place to start on a project of de-emphasizing the state. But I really see it as something which historians have been trying to do of late and have increasingly realized uh, is part of the, the modern mission. Um, history as a discipline arose with the European nation-state in the 19th century. And it believed that it's, its task was to promote the rise of those states. Um, looking back on it, now that we've become rather critical of nationalism, it used to be part of our uh, genes, perhaps, or at least part of the way we were brought up um, in the 40s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, but uh, now that we're more critical of it, we can see that it's, it's a particular uh, phase uh and that what we were chronicling as historians was necessarily exaggerating vitally uh, that particular story. It, it gave us a storyline. You think of you know, English schoolboys being able to recite the Kings of England or, or Australian schoolboys being able to recite the ministers of Australia, uh, as if that was the key thing. I mean, that, that was the storyline. You know, it's the politics, it's the state that provides a story. Now, once you say, well, really, is that the most important thing you can say about the past? That one promise to replace another, or one king? Um, of course it isn't. The Southeast Asia, as I say, is, is a good place to show how other stories can uh, be seen to be much more important because the state really was late to uh, make a big difference in people's lives. Um, that's, that's my take. Uh, that this was a, 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 a place, a part of the world where stateless peoples uh, were able to remain stateless right up until the end of the nineteenth century. Um, indeed, in some places, even now, hardly aware of, of the state, lived in highlands and small islands I and mean, these sort of refuges of refuges of liberty, you might say, being, being free of the state, it enables you to think. Well, I mean, but do they have a history? Of course they have a history. Um, But if if we try to figure out what their history is, it'll help us see what other people's histories are also much more varied than that of the state. So it it seemed to make Southeast Asia a good test case to try to develop other stories, um, other huge changes uh, than the ones that my electoral ancestors, the ones who sort of invented Southeast Asian history, uh, thought they were doing.
1: So how did Southeast Asia work against the types of state formation that we see in India or China in that same period?
0: Well, my standard explanation is environment. Um, I mean, you can't explain everything by environment, but uh, that's uh, clearly a lot of it. Southeast Asia is a place of forest and water where um, marching armies, uh, such as control the Roman Empire or the Chinese Empire, uh, don't really get much purchase. And the Chinese found that. Of course, the Chinese relentlessly moved south with their bureaucratic state and their marching armies and they built roads and they, and they organized supplies. So they hit cross enormous distances. But once they got to the tropical environment of dense forests and heavy rainfall and uh, impassable rivers, um, things became very difficult, and, and tropical diseases which they were less familiar. the These factors are are very important. I think that uh, they made uh, Southeast Asia less uh, congenial to large state-building projects, at least until you had maritime empires such as the British Dutch. But there's there's perhaps another factor which has only recently occurred to me, and I think to the profession. Since the tectonic theory has become established, which was really only 20, 30 years ago, we realized what an extraordinarily vulnerable part of the world this is. I mean, the most populous and dangerous part of the Ring of Fire, where earthquakes, volcanoes are everyday occurrences. That is now clear, and, and it was made extremely clear to me and to everybody in the 2004 tsunami in Sumatra. Um, But if you think, I mean, since then, of course, I've been rethinking uh, how I feel about Southeast Asian history and making amends for the fact that I never mentioned earthquakes and volcanoes and tsunamis in anything I've written before. Um, It it does seem to me that this must be part of the explanation for why um, coast-based, agriculturally-based states were periodically wiped out or at least set back. But the mm, uh, states which were built on exposed coasts would tend to suffer disproportionately and totally mm-hmm. in, in tsunamis. Um, states that were based on agriculture, almost, course, as almost all states are, of course, um, would suffer, especially from the mega eruptions which uh, cause a huge uh, of ash and, and uh, acidification of the air and so forth make agriculture impossible for a decade. So, this kind of uh, disaster must probably have been part of the reason why some of the states that we saw beginning to form in the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries um, didn't continue.
1: And you, and similarly, you attribute that reason to, well, that's one reason for the end of the age of commerce, the long 16th century, that natural disasters again affected um, low-lying states.
0: Yes, there, there isn't a single big natural disaster you can point to uh, that did it, but climatic changes uh, are thought now to have been a big factor we can more easily point to some earlier um, spectacular changes to uh, the in Angkor or the uh, uh, 13th century and so forth, the general period of crisis in the, in the 13th century, climatic uh, and, and uh, other natural phenomena causing that. But in the 17th century, there's also clearly uh, a change in the, The rainfall patterns, that is part of the explanation there, but I can only say a part,
1: not whole. So these uh, environmental climatic features go to some of the reasons as to why at certain points in time states decline, but you also seem to be taking... Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but an, but an analytical position against emphasis on the state perhaps for other reasons. For instance, you, you talk about uh, one of your concerns in this book being quote, to correct distortions imposed by reading back modern concepts of state into times and places where they they don't belong. So again, I wonder if there's something more to it than just uh, a okay. uh, rise and decline. Yeah, of, of course, course there is.
0: And I, I suppose part of This is about the uh, discomfort with nationalist historiography. In in my earliest days, of course, I was part of the the enthusiastic rejection of uh, of, uh, colonialism and embracing of the new nationalism. It was also exciting. But um, once nationalist uh, myth-making took off, and then became enforced as a sort of uh, uh, requirement that textbooks would only teach this kind of uh, nationalist myth. Um, it, it became a little more disturbing for the historians in what, what distortions were taking place. I mean, the most obvious distortions are on the part of that kind of nationalist historiography, which uh, like to talk about... The great glories of the past, uh, as if they were states with prime ministers and ministers of finance and foreign ministers and so forth, as, as if this, these were states like the modern states that they were trying they were trying to be constructed uh, in the twentieth century. Um, so that's that's a discomfort, and I suppose that uh, I'm. Inspired to, to take this view uh, not just by irritation, I hope, by with, with the nationalist writers, but also uh, with the notion that we're living in a post-nationalist globalised world. Where we can no longer afford this kind of uh, nationalist distortion. We, we have to write, and I, this for me now, this is now fundamental, we have to write as if We are all on this planet together, uh, and that kind of partisan history that only writes the history of us and defines us in some arbitrary way, to be read back to somehow people in the 14th century or somehow us against them, that kind of history is not only wrong and distortion, but it's destructive of, of the kind of world we need to live in today.
1: So, one of the features of Southeast Asia that you speak to throughout the, the book um, in these terms is um, an expression used, that I like is civilization without cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and indeed, one of the themes you identify at the beginning of the book also is how the cultural and economic structures of Southeast Asia differed from elsewhere and how they can inform our understanding of, of human progress. So, Perhaps you could say something more about what form this civilization without cities took in in different periods, its economic and social dimensions. We've touched on women, of course. Another feature of the book that I was interested in was, um, for instance, was reciprocities between coastal and interior producers and how the type of economic relations that developed then enabled this civilization without cities across Southeast Asia. I
0: recall at the end of the book... Um, it's, we're um, trying to be upbeat uh, about, you know, saying that um, despite a lot of manifest dangers and problems uh, with Muslim religion and uh, conflicts what holds Southeast Asian societies together is a sort of Inherent valuing of civility in social relations, uh, which has come. So, I I think there is something in this that that pattern of of valuing interpersonal harmony, um, avoiding uh, uh, a self-assertive conflict in everyday. Uh, interpersonal relations, is something that goes far back and it was never constructed by a strong state that, that required this kind of a, but rather by a pattern of firstly religion and secondly performance. It mean, is popular culture um, as uh, dispersed through typically Performances at every kind of festival, every kind of uh, marriage or event, where there would be a play, a puppet show, or some, some kind of performance, which would extol the, the correct manner of polite, um, civilized behavior, always larded with less correct. Buffoonery from clowns and so forth, which you, you, you knew that was more fun, but that's not how you're supposed to behave. You're supposed to behave like These very elegant, low-key people who don't raise their voice and don't. I think, um I mean, perhaps this, I mean, the civility thing can, can be ever done, Um but, uh, it is a feature of Southeast Asia. Um and it, it's not one that has been built by, built by sex, Um If if we think also about what created the Vietnamese culture or a Javanese culture or uh, a Bahamaic culture, Um, I mean, sure, there were states that uh, embraced most of those people who speak those languages and and embrace those cultures, but for rather short periods. There are very short periods in which we can really say some sort of status is coevolved with that, uh, that civilization. In the Vietnamese case, as we know from, from the time when Vietnam started to expand down uh, the southern half of what is now Vietnam, from the very beginning, it was two Vietnam's. It was not a state, it was two states. And they varied greatly. Uh, the expanding one, the southern one, was, of course, extremely heterogeneous and engaged with Chan, Khmer, and um, And yet, a Vietnamese culture emerged, even though uh, there's a very short period in which there was a state that, that you know, probably about um, a century, the uh, 19th century, in which Vietnam was in, in any sense united politically and then very, in a very fragile way. Uh, and yet, the, the, the idea of the Vietnamese culture is rich from, uh, that's even more true in, in Java, where the, the period for which it was a Javanese state is perhaps um, 30, 30 years in you know, the 17th century, when there was a Gantara king, you might say, or, uh, a short you know, period of uh, strong rule, But... Um, All the rest of the time, Java has been very disunited. But there's no question that that, the Wayang is a very Javanese thing. And its stories are shared and loved. And and that has been so since way, way back. Uh, uh, It's described even by Ralph back in the 1800s. This is how the culture is transmitted. This is how people uh, know what their culture is. Uh, in China, people knew what their culture was. Essentially, I mean, uh, two levels. Mm-hmm. There's the literati written culture of the classics, which is uh, state level. What the happens There's also popular religion, of course. But the um, the state level thing just didn't really operate much in South East Asia, except for to some degree, limited degree. here yeah. uh, it was rather the uh, popular culture thing and
1: popular religion. So you would be saying to someone who say, visits Southeast Asia and goes to the uh, sites like Bagan, Angkor or Borobudur, that uh, what they're looking at are really exceptions to the story of Southeast Asian history rather than the centrepieces that they're so often held up to be, or have I perhaps misinterpreted um, your
0: Well, work? it's... <laughs> Good question. Angkor mm-hmm. uh, in particular is hard to fit into my scheme. Mm-hmm. But Pagan and Borobudur, I'm quite happy to embrace as uh, and, and to have re-examined what are they really. Are these royal uh, cities or are they great uh, sacred centres of popular life? I have no doubt that it's the latter. If we think of Barbador, I mean, the, the, the historians, early historians, struggled hard to find kings that could explain this, about how this thing was built, uh, and how they could explain that, you know, not that far away, about 40 kilometers away, it was wonderful Hindu buildings built at the same period, and so they, you know, how there could be two different strong states doing different things. The, the truth, I think, particularly with Buddhist uh, monuments, is that this response, these, these were built by the donations of ordinary folks, or at least the great plurality of folks. Of course they had some resources that included them. You know, but we, we have inscriptionary evidence of you know, lots of these, particularly in all the people who built different towns, and it's not different. You know? so that's, different and that's why there just so many. People. Angkor is a, is a, it does look like a big bad bureaucratic state. And, uh, uh, it's not, uh, nothing that is called Angkor. It's essentially a state. Uh, and I, I, I believe, uh, that there are some environmental reasons why that became a very successful, uh, control controlling the, the, world you know, the waterworks in the, cycle of, of agriculture in the area north of the Johnny it's, it's a particular uh, advantageous location in which they worked very well for a day several centuries. Um, but even so the new work on it is seen vastly more throughout uh, than the early the work saw it as a succession of and the first chairama, the second chairman and, and that these guys did it um now I think we, we get, the archaeology is revealing that the, the, the big temples of are right. replicated and the irrigation works at the center of are replicated in all kinds of other small things similar way, as if just say each community had its own hydraulic system and its own religious system uh, so that it, it wasn't purely centralized.
1: Much of the discussion that you have around the Nagara polities concerns Indic religions, but when we get into the later periods, we see increasingly the story is about Islamic traders, um, the Portuguese emerging with their uh, particular brand of Christianity, and indeed the emergence of what you describe as the first global war fought out in the Indian Ocean on religious lines. Can you say something about that aspect of the book?
0: Yeah, well that of course made a huge difference and, and it was, it was the Portuguese intervention in the Indian Ocean that, that changed profoundly the nature of, of maritime interaction. And because the Portuguese had been crusading against the Muslims in their own country, in, in Portugal, and then they continued that in, in Morocco and down the coast of Africa. And they came into the Indian Ocean with the same Mix, perhaps even more powerful mix of economic motive. We want to get the spices, we want to get them directly uh, through Venice and Cairo uh, along that Muslim controlled route. Um, we want to get the spices, uh, but also we're quite happy to hammer the Muslims to do it. We so feel entitled to raid every Muslim ship and uh, attack every Muslim fort where we think there's enough. A, 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 a new kind of element of, uh, in a sense of barbarity, of uh, saying, you know, to take this offensive is okay. That, maybe that only describes the first 20 years of the Portuguese, because of course that, that's a very short-term strategy, and you soon realize that you can only do business if you accommodate people and, and so forth. But, it did create a Muslim reaction, it did create a, an appeal from all the Muslim centers around well the Ocean to the big big Muslim power of the world, which was Ottoman Turkey. And the Ottomans controlled both ends of the Syriac, uh, the Nazis of Suez now, the Eastern Mediterranean and the Red Sea and so forth. So they appealed to Turkey send some fleets out and you know, get these guys out of it. They appealed on religious grounds, of course. To control the, the whole places, And uh, you we know, you know, want to do a pilgrimage to Mecca Medina. Portuguese are appearing. Please And you had an interesting uh, globalization uh, around Eurasia, at least, uh, of the battle between Huxley, Catholic Spain and the Ottomans, uh, which, of course, on the ground in South Asia, that Identification of political interests, religious interests, economic interests uh, in the polarization between Portuguese and America, that that profoundly changed things, and that, it meant that uh, for me that's a decisive moment in the definition of who's a, who's an uplander and who's a Muslim in, in the Muslim class. Southern um, and Islam became a political project, uh, which was not an economic project, to dominate the spices, keep the domination of the spices, and to attack the Portuguese. And then, to, therefore, to attack anybody who wasn't on this side of that context. And so those who felt themselves attacked, who had not been Muslims, um, had felt they could do business with the virtues, uh, tended to retreat afterwards and become what we call stateless people, become the savages, whatever, of, uh, of later times. I mean, this is part of my, my story of, of how to give stateless people a history, to, to see that they were not always stateless people. They were not essentially different and linguistically and they and, and, the same people as the other peoples, but they um, at this point find themselves as having rejected this sort of package.
1: Here you have some affinity with uh, James Scott's work on uh, mm-hmm. Zomia, and you say that he worked out a similar. Um, set of ideas and, and, and drew them together for the uplands of mainland Southeast Asia that you had already been thinking through on the uh, archipelagic bridges. No if you would like to discuss that aspect of the book any any further before perhaps we turn back to modernity.
0: Well I, I know Jim Scott pretty well and said that ever since he was a graduate student in when I was just starting my career. And we've we've exchanged thoughts on this a lot. Uh, I to tell you a little bit. Tell these, and me, um, when the book came out, uh, I mean, this was a, a real broadside. I mean, it, 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 uh, I knew, you know, we were talking about these ideas of statelessness being a choice, being something that, that we actually prefer. Freedom. It's, it's in effect, freedom uh, from the constraints um, and uh, but when he wrote that uh, manifesto, uh, the art of not being governed, uh, it, it's I, I thought, well, okay, this releases me. But I don't have to, you know, make this argument. It's loud and clear. so much much more loud and clear than I would have dared to do. And indeed, very ably done. Well, of course, he sometimes overstates it, uh, and. Doesn't allow too much room for well, obviously the beneficent uh, consequences of having a step. But the, the of this is what life is is this nasty, brutal, and short when you do have a step. But um, uh, so I, I took that as as part of the, the toolkit I had to deal with since it came out, just as I was. You know, getting this thing to a final stage. Uh, and the other book that came out, of course, uh, a later was, was Rick Lieberman's book, which in a, in a sense is an opposite. This is a very really big book tracing the way in which the state did expand. the Asian state uh, expanded in the same way. The European state, the Chinese state, and he that the states became ever more large, centralized, culturally diverse. Um, so they seem to be both saying it's irreconcilable things. and in fact, both, of, them are, of course, expressing the truth and the broad truth, but part of the truth. So um, I, I hoped to steer a course between these two, um, but clearly, um, in terms of novelty, what I have, that's you to say. I am more a gym in that, um, although I, I'd say discipline in what I do like, but in terms of being excited by this idea, how do we give people to history? How do we how do we acknowledge that the state isn't the whole story, that, that it isn't as if, oh, you missed the bus, so you, you don't exist. The bus is is it safe? And it's going in this direction. If you miss, well, sorry you don't know We have to do better than that. And, and I, I was excited by that challenge. Again, excited.
1: Well, um, whoever comes out um, on whichever side of that argument, it's clear from your text that, and indeed from, from others as well, that, as you put it, with uh, the emergence of higher colonialism uh, around about uh, 1880s, uh, one of the key changes was the ending of autonomy for state evaders, and you point to how the fixing of borders had been part of a state practice for a for long time, but there were really very new implications uh, in this period um, among the other implications of the period and perhaps we can come back to where we started the discussion at this point in the, in this late period and then into the 20th century uh, you you say that the, the colonizers succeeded in creating a sophisticated system for export agriculture, but one that on the other hand, um, discouraged manufacture, hardened economic dividing lines into racial ones and succeeded in producing stagnant economies through European-owned monopolies that trapped most of the rural population in Southeast Asia are in poverty it sounds almost like the inverse of the age of Commerce. So I wonder if you could uh, talk us through again some features of this period and, and why you've made uh, quite a strong statement in this respect Yes I suppose this is this
0: is my um, my economic historian's judgment of high colonialism in a way that's I suppose it's true opposite to some of the books I read when I was a student in yeah. Um, which, which saw the infrastructure being built as if that was the birth of the modern economy. In some ways it was, but it was not the birth of entrepreneurship. It was, in a sense, the death of entrepreneurship because uh, these were uh, government-linked enterprises, especially in the 19th century uh, and, and before. It was, it was an entirely state- Company, a, a monopolistic, uh, a enterprise, even in the 19th century, it's much like that. Even when um, the um, colonial powers adopted what they saw as a, as a liberal policy of allowing investment from all quarters, um, the, uh, the Europeans in Southeast Asia remained a small group who knew each other. We had cozy arrangements between uh, private enterprise and companies um, where the degree of uh, real competition was rather low. Like what you had in each of these colonies was uh, had four or five big banks and big companies, and big, what uh, uh, they call trading houses, that handled all the, the business. That were very cosy with government. With, yeah, they all went to the same clubs and so on. And really, the great majority of the population were not part of that. Uh, and then you had the Chinese, who were uh, not just that they were entrepreneurial in time. Of course they were. They were, as an immigrant group, pretty immigrant group is inclined to have to find that they would get into business because they can't get into agriculture. So, really, um, so they were that way in time. But um, the way the colonial much um, developed, the structure developed, in the way you, if you wanted to do business, you better call yourself Chinese. If you want to do agriculture, you better call yourself Bermudas or Javanese or something. I mean, of course, in the Burmese case, we have to meet Indians, because in most of the roles of Chinese um, Part of this, I, I venture the idea somewhat, uh, perhaps, uh, tentatively, because it's a, it, it, it's unknowable, fundamentally. But I did try to link the failure of the indigenous population throughout Southeast Asia, Well, they, they if you like, their retreat from entrepreneurship to the maleness of the colonial project. The, the colonial era and colonial establishment, whether government or business was entirely male, There's not a woman insult. And so modern business seemed to work that way when the modern European businesses or indeed Chinese businesses to a somewhat lesser extent, but even Chinese businesses also, or in own, um, looked for indigenous partners. They looked for men, always. Um, now, men have not been very good at that. Because uh, men in Southeast Asia have to worry about status. Status is, is extremely important, And um, status is hard to reconcile with doing business effectively. Status meant you had to look as if you're a rich dude and you don't care about it. Um, it's are above or something. Oh, no, yeah, take it. Um, they left that kind of business, mm-hmm. the haggling, like, to their to their work. For um, women did it, by the way. Didn't disappear from business, but on the whole, I mean, the story of colonialism is what happened to the indigenous middle class. There no other Southeast Asians became an aristocracy, a tiny aristocracy who did the government and pest. so most of Southeast Asians was peasantized, um, and um, the structures simply made it. Very difficult. The gender structure and made it very difficult for um, indigenous people to get into a church. And that's still a marked problem for them, most of South Australia. But it's, uh, of course, become less than uh, partly as women have got back into So, in particular, most strikingly in the Philippines, one of the world leaders in, in terms of.
1: You seem to suggest that more generally women in Southeast Asia are, are relatively more mobile and liberated than their counterparts in many other parts of Asia and indeed around the world. Um, as a result primarily of their pre-colonial heritage and the continuity of traditions from earlier periods, then um, what, in in a sense, look almost like perverse claims of the late European colonisers that they somehow had something to do with the liberation of of women, women. when your suggestion is that it was very much the opposite.
0: I am suggesting that, yes. um, What the claims about liberating women are especially directed at very aristocratically. Um, so the, the King and I story, and uh, mm-hmm. the, the Norms, um, which of course became very popular, uh, is a story about a unique uh, monarchy, um, the biggest surviving monarchy in Southeast Asia, which um, was exceptionally a monk who only became king and stopped being a monk when he was about fifty-five years old I think, but he had uh, something like 40 wives and more more than 100 children so um, that was a a, a bizarre world the the reality well the other part of that uh, is that Liberating women, or, or protecting women. It was, of course, in the, in the colonial era, it wasn't about liberating, it was about protecting. Um, so, um, the European idea was that women should not be out there in the workplace in, in dangerous you know, situations where they might be exploited or something. So, I mean, there was a protective idea. There was a, a uh, the early Perhaps one of the earliest attempts by the International Labour Organization during the League of Nations time in the early 1920s. They tried to pass an international statute saying no women should work uh, after five o'clock meeting. Anyway, and in Holland they signed up for that uh, because very few women worked in Holland anyway. Uh, Certainly not respectable women. Uh, One of the the least uh, Favorable places for women to work in the world. Um, but then they tried to extend it to the Indies, and of course, all the employers said, hey, You must be careful. You know, our factories were built by women. Our factories are nice, based women. to do the, the production, the tobacco factories, the cloth factories. They were staffed by women, as, as they were not in the world. So, this was sort of, heavily defeated. So the, 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 uh, yes, part of the, the rhetoric of European was to protect them, but also oh. uh, to, to, to educate them. them. And, uh, education was, of course, the business of uh, religion, uh, mostly. And all the religions, and all, major religions, I say here, of course. External to they all came from much more patriarchal places, and they all were very patriarchal. They all, uh, thought our kind of secular education is anything. And, uh, so in that sense, uh, the Europeans did uh, <laughs> they brought the idea that you know, mm-hmm. even the
1: moderns should educate. <laughs> I'm going to jump to the final parts of the book and... um, listeners are going to have to take a look at the text for themselves to learn more about the revolutionary and nationalist movements of the pre-Second World War period. After the Second World War, we turned from from high colonialism to high modernism. And one of the aspects of the work here that struck me was uh, you talk about the paradoxical, unprecedented embrace of, of modern European cultural and political norms. So... What happened in this period that there was this seemingly paradoxical embrace?
0: Uh, I, I do think um, it, is, it is paradoxical. Uh, we did uh, imagine, I suppose, uh, when we first uh, embraced these revolutions so that brought independence to Southeast Asian countries, that it was some sort of return of, of um, Asian culture. Oh. But, in fact, the... You know, the people who inherited those revolutions were exceptional, truly exceptional modernisers. The, the Europeans had had, up until the First World War, and then we to say that 30, 40 years before 1914, the Europeans had also had a lot of confidence, a lot of confidence in their model, right? that the only the European model really works for the world, so we can cheerfully try to impose it on everybody. European type law. And commercial norms and so um, but they never thought of uh, imposing this in the cultural or religious domain and, and changing people's habits and dress. It. But the, the the new revolutionary states actually did dream those dreams. They imagined that what we would do was build new uh, Indonesians, new Filipinos, new Europeans, new Germans that we we would build a a new modern country um, that was united by the revolutionary struggle uh, and by all the wonderful education and so forth that we're going to introduce, not by its cultural Mm -hmm. distinctiveness. Indeed, the cultural pattern was very diverse in those countries. But it, it seemed to turn out a little. So, for a while there, in the 50s and 60s, there was a, a, a distinct downplaying of the traditional you know, and the Asian. And, I mean, obviously, the embrace of Western dress, for example. I mean, how did that happen? Why did it happen that everybody suddenly started looking the same? Um, I mean, in a sense, it happened everywhere in the world. But, uh, much more so in Southeast Asia, then in South Asia, are sort of many things in India are still much more uh, entrenched. So, the, 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 particularly the revolutionary countries, Vietnam, in India, yeah, sort of India, it's a bit of a million, all thoughts, Cambodia, ghastly, I call it um, but also Singapore, you know, with the, the extraordinary football of Lee Kuan uh, to think that he could totally reinvent the society. Uh, from people, kampong dwellers living in, in little villages with coconut trees and chickens running around, to put them all in 15-story apartments um, where they all had to mix with each other in, in a strange think. That was social engineering of a colossal scale. So, I mean, Paul Potts' breathtaking, uh, appalling uh, idea that you know, impose a single model and throw out everything traditional about Cambodia and all of those past and you go it was, was a, a sort of radical extreme, but even somebody who is generally seen as, as socially conservative uh, like Lee Kuan Yew was very convinced that this first generation was entitled to make these sort of changes. And and indeed, because of their status as the bringers of independence, they almost could, Uh, not in terms of constructing something new, but in terms of casting off the many old things. So there was a a lot of cultural loss. But I think out of it came, for better or worse, out of it came relatively coherent nation states. That's, that's the extraordinary thing. That's, I suppose, one of the, one of the extraordinary, unexpected phenomena. Unexpected if you're living in pre-independence uh, southeast Asia, in the United states or any of these states, I think you, you would never have expected that there would have been a single education system which would uh, ensure that everybody throughout these vast sprawling so spoke the same language and thought, um, educated, essentially.
1: So what does it mean to talk about Southeast Asia today? Is the, is the idea of Southeast Asia still relevant as it once apparently was? Um, in, in
0: some of the things which I talked about in earlier periods as United, the region, its environment, its material culture, its sort of rice agriculture, and the pattern of food and the pattern of housing. Or they don't seem so relevant. Everybody lives in cities. Everybody, in a sense, is, uh, to that extent, like the rest of the world. Um, the environment is much less uh, important. Once everybody moves around in the air-conditioned shopping malls and stuff. Um, so, in... in many of those respects, things are different. But nevertheless, the way in which Southeast Asian countries have evolved have created a new kind of uh, distinctiveness, I think. Uh, and here I mean distinct from China distinct from. I I, mean, I begin that book by saying you know, this is part of the point, but it's not that. You just have the derivative you know, bits of Indian culture and, and the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and bits of the Chinese culture, the Vietnamese, uh, Confucianism, and so But, But rather, that um, the, these societies have distinctly demarcated themselves from those two. Mm-hmm. Civilizations, um, and that's nowhere clearer than, than ASEAN, and then looking at the response to China's aggressiveness in South China. So of course, the more that happens, the more Vietnam, which might well have felt that they had as much in common with China as, as with Southeast Asia, more probably. Um, but the more uh, there is a, a need to assert that the China, the more Southeast Asia makes political sense in it. But I, I guess I, I said towards the end that the kind of politics that Southeast Asia has developed, and that you and I and all of us have wrung our hands with brief and woe and about um, these soft societies, these corrupt societies that, that never seem to get their act together. Um, that this is. Um, usually analyzed, particularly when Southeast Asia was doing badly economically, we usually analyzed this phenomenon in negative terms. And I mean, we, we didn't treat them as a collective. What's wrong with Southeast Asia? I mean, much of it was also what's wrong with South Asia, but you know, why is it separate economic dynamic? Why is entrepreneurship so Why is corruption so endemic and nothing that states think they can do actually get into the network. Um, I, I think one can if we look hard at China and look hard at India, we can be a little more positive in this model. I mean, particularly since economically headed, it has been doing it. Okay, we're now less inclined to say what's wrong with South East Asia, and so much to say what's right with South East Asia, particularly if we compare it with other parts tropics, uh, the tropical world that um, has, has nothing, nothing else environmentally quite like Southeast Asia, but anything that is remotely like it, um, Southeast Asia is doing pretty well. But it, it, it is a kind of, I um, wouldn't call it but it is a kind of accommodation um, which has not been legalistic. And again, many of my colleagues Differ from me on this, and I myself am often deeply frustrated that people who commit atrocities and mass murders seem never to be brought to justice, and the system seems not to want to bring them to justice. The, the, the way the combination works seems to, to preserve this civility, to preserve the, the sense of harmony as if we could all be part of a, a system in which we're reasonably civil to each other, in which we compromise and, and value a kind of consensus, even if it's, it's a very uh, visual uh, consensus. Uh, now, that, that is, I think, a kind of reality. Uh, sometimes it makes us wince uh, and, and protest That justice is not being done. The evil perpetrators of atrocities are brought reconciled with the victims rather than be punished. But it is a way of doing things, and uh, it, it is a way of allowing society to move on. And if one compares with either China, which has a strong state, can get things done, but totally unaccountable state, totally zero marks when it comes to um, which Southeast Asia has, has done uh, much, much better in terms of allowing for the route to be used freedom of expression, so here and um, there, in South Asia which of course is a paragon of amazing, bountiful, plural democracy, but it can't liberate its women, and it can't liberate its its castes, and, and that's an appalling failure of the modern state. So, in between those two, little nations of The Southeast Asian experiment, such as it is, which means analysis and better minds than mine and much more research than to to make sense of it as a as a a whole. But I do think it's it's A something distinctive, and B something (laughs) to go back to my book, something critical for the world to look at and and, comment. As to whether this is as worthy of attention
1: as either term Tony, at the end of an interview about a book that took a quarter of a century to write, I I fear that my closing question um, may sound a little bit impertinent. but we do have a tradition, for better or worse, on this podcast of asking interviewees what they're working on now and what we can expect from them next. So do you have uh, – I'm sure you do, but would you like to share with us um, what's going on at the moment by way of another project uh, and uh, what can we look forward to from you? Well,
0: perhaps perhaps three things. Um, Firstly, most importantly, and immediately, I I feel with this book, I've really paid my dues. You know, I've acquitted my obligations to my profession. Done. uh, Said, well, if I had something to say, it it must be there. I mean, if it isn't there, I had every opportunity. Um, so I feel liberated to write my novel. I guess we all sooner or later have to write our novel, so I'm I'm, playing, I'm enjoying playing Bill Cance and writing my novel. But, I mean, there's also some other things. Uh, one day, somebody should write a history of Aceh, and I suppose it should be me, because I've done a lot on Aceh. So. A, a place I couldn't... I mean, one has to be hesitant about writing a national history. I, I think these days, I mean, I have never done it. I've never written a history of it in Asia, any country. You know, I've been asked to do something. Like and to do it for Aceh when it was in a state of uh, the would have been a highly charged and political thing to do, to, to have to say that well, this is a separate place that has its separate history. But now that this is restored and Aceh is incredibly part or in Indonesia I, I feel I, I perhaps should do that on my A on of and the third thing is that I get a bit stirred up about is the, the natural disasters that I mentioned before that ever since the tsunami in 2004 I've been sort of rethinking what the past must have looked like and, and realizing it must have been pretty scary uh, at times, and still being in the And therefore the future will, this, this will work And it, uh, if, if we had another eruption tomorrow, almost there, even Tambora, or Tanjani in the say, Tambora in 1215, and January in 1256, um, and some others we don't know about, but even those two, they must recur, then um, this will be an extraordinary challenge. And uh, it it has an effect on me, not necessarily, not apparently on our governments, but on on me of feeling more convinced that Homo sapiens is one, with responsibility for this very vulnerable planet. And playing our nationalistic games is, time's up for that. We've done plenty of that, we've done plenty of harm doing it. It's time to regulate this planet nationally, and it's time to prepare for the big disasters when they come, and we have to prepare collectively for those, and it it should humble us. uh, As in, in a sense, the tsunami humbled Indonesia and made it realise pursuing this military solution of killing every every uh, separatist of just is, is is obscene and when such a natural disaster. Um I think something like that should make us pull together and think harder about. So I, I will play with that theme and try to work harder on Understanding how it disasters it, it? <laughs> and the future of the And try to our government. Justice it,
1: just, it uh, Professor Anthony Reid, thank you so much for speaking to us today about a history of Southeast Asia, critical crossroads. It's been a pleasure and an honour. Thanks very much. <laughs> And thanks to everyone for listening. I look forward to having you join me again for another meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian studies. And if you have time, do check out all of the other great network channels like New Books in History, where this show will be cross-posted.